Well, good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're coming to the end of our studies in uh, the Thessalonian correspondence from Paul to this early church um, after he had founded it and spent a short time with them, his instructions to them. As we come to this text, we're going to deal with a challenge, a question. Um, how should we deal with those who disregard God's word? The challenge could be placed under the heading of what we call church discipline. It must be considered uh, this, this subject of church discipline, uh, for it is an important uh, part of the life of any church. It's a sad part of the life of any church when it becomes necessary to, uh, uh, to carry out church discipline, but it is necessary if we're to live as a church in accordance with God's word, and so we need to consider this subject. And it's best to consider that subject before it becomes necessary to actually put it into practice. It's best to consider the subject from the standpoint of people who aren't, um, who aren't dealing with all of the difficulties and all of the struggles and the sadness that attends such a scenario in the life of any church. What we need to know from this text, then, is what uh, we need to know a few things about church discipline. First, we need to know and recognize that church discipline is an act of love. Second, we're going to need to see and recognize that church discipline is a legitimate practice. Thirdly, we're going to need to see and, and recognize that church discipline is a reasonable practice. It's both legitimate and it's reasonable. It's an act of love. And if, as we think about these things, we're going to need to consider what church discipline looks like, what constitutes church discipline in the life of a local church. So if you found your place in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 6, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuine, genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now that as we deal with this subject that may be uncomfortable and difficult to consider, that you would be gracious to us and that you would instruct us from your word as you give us hearts that are ready to receive your word. Lord, we thank you 
for the many ways in which you have answered this prayer uh, throughout our time together. We pray that you would continue to answer that prayer, that we might be people who receive the commands that you give us in your word and receive the encouragements and the instructions faithfully, trusting that they are for our good and for your glory. And so may we be a people, Lord, who in receiving those things seek with all our heart to do that which is pleasing to you, not so that we might bring glory to ourselves, but that we might glorify you as you work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So, Father, we pray that you would work in us now by your Spirit so that we might be a people who wait faithfully with all energy, seeking to do what you've called us to do as, as uh, witnesses to your goodness and your grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I've said that this text is, a way, is, is an important text when we think about the subject of church discipline, and you may have been listening as I read and reading along and thinking, well, what does this particular text have to do with the subject of church discipline? Normally, we would turn to texts like we find in Matthew chapter 18, or we would look at the letter to the first, Corinthian, the first letter to the Corinthian church, and we will look at some of those texts tonight. But here I say that this is a uh, text that's primarily about church discipline because Paul is not so much focused on giving instructions to those who are idle, but rather he's focused on giving instructions to a church that is dealing with those who have rejected and refused to respond to his clear instructions concerning the industry and the, the work ethic of a Christian. Let me remind you of those if you turn back with me a few pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just to give you some context. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9, we read these words. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, you recall uh, our study in 1 Thessalonians uh, about a month or two ago. We were in this particular text, and I made the case that, uh, that, that working hard with our hands and, and, and remaining independent in so much as we are able, is a way, a particular way, in which we love one another. And it was a particular, uh, it was a particular uh, uh, challenge for the church in Thessalonica, where they had people who were not working, uh, they were, they were um, re uh, relying upon the good graces and the charity and the uh, hospitality of others in the church. And there were uh, many possible reasons why this may have been the case. Um, we, might, we might look simply to the fact that this church, as a group of Christians who did demonstrate positive signs of the work of the Spirit in their life, people who were living out their Christian faith um, in a way that was consistent with uh, biblical teaching, would have naturally been disposed to hospitality and acts of charity. They would have, they would have strived and desired to show kindness to others, and that would have meant that they would have given them uh, financial aid or even uh, invited them into their own homes and, and given them a place to stay. And so we see then that it would be very easy for someone to come in and take advantage of that hospita hospitality. 
Another possibility, another, uh, uh, and these are not mutually exclusive possibilities. All of these might have contributed to one situation. But another uh, possible reason why this was a problem in Thessalonica could have been the, um, the practice of patronage in the, uh, in the Roman world. The idea of patronage is, is um, not something that uh, we know very well today. But at that time, uh, in, a, in a highly stratified culture with, with uh, sort of caste systems, there was a certain class of individuals who relied upon financial support from wealthy benefactors. And they wouldn't engage in uh, labor that was um, directly profitable. They wouldn't engage in manual labor or anything uh, that might, uh, uh, that might uh, yield a wage, but they would engage in other pursuits, maybe pursuits of learning and pursuits of study. And um, they really would not have been very industrious in, in a great many ways, but they would have relied upon benefactors who would um, fund their ability to engage in this kind of life. It may be that as the Thessalonians became, uh, came to Christ and uh, were then um, uh, engaged a hostile culture where they were separated from their culture and their society and they were, they were uh, now no longer part of that Thessalonian culture in the way that they used to be, um, that, that a, a different sort of system of patronage arose within the church where people expected that same kind of support from wealthy benefactors um, and, uh, and came to uh, receive it, at least in part, and came to rely upon it and refused to then be industrious and work with their own hands and work to support themselves. That's another possible situation that might have contributed to it, and clearly Paul is teaching the Thessalonians not to have a culture that simply um, mirrors the culture they came out of in Thessalonica, that he's calling them to have a different kind of culture that is in line with biblical principles concerning work and industry. And then a third possible situation um, that could have contributed to this problem in the Thessalonian church would have been doctrinal confusion, the kind of doctrinal confusion that we've seen throughout First and Second Thessalonians concerning the coming of the Lord. And one of those problems was uh, that, that Paul addressed in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 quite directly uh, was uh, the, the mistaken teaching that the day of the Lord has already come. And there were others who, it seems, were expecting the day of the Lord, uh, the, the Christ to return in a very, very short space of time. Well, if I told you all that I received a vision from the Lord that Jesus is going to return in the next three weeks, how many of you would go to work tomorrow morning? <laughs> now, uh, hopefully you would, uh, if, I, if I told you that, you would fire me on the spot. But uh, you can imagine how that would change your priorities if you knew that, well, you only needed uh, to support yourself for the next three weeks. And if they had doctrinal confusion concerning the coming of the Lord, uh, it seems natural that some people might have had uh, confusion about how they ought to live in light of the coming of the Lord. Whatever the situation, Paul does not uh, go through all of the details on all the, all the possible um, issues that might have given rise to this problem in the Thessalonian church, but rather he simply recognizes that it is a problem and it's a continuing problem as we turn to 2 Thessalonians. In other words, uh, however much time elapsed between the first and the second letter, probably about a year or a year and a half maybe, or up to two years, some space of time, some people who had received and read and, 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 um, and heard read that first letter decided that they weren't going to go along with the program, that they weren't going to fall in line with what Paul was teaching them to do, and they continued to walk in idleness. And so this report has made its way back to Paul, and he has heard that there are some who are walking in idleness, who are 
not busy at work, but they are busy bodies. They're, in fact, doing the very opposite of what Paul told them to do when he said they are to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Instead, they are idle, they are dependent on others, and they are not minding their own affairs, but they are busybodies. They are gossips or they're meddlers uh, in other people's affairs. So Paul's instructions, although he will give instructions to that group of people again, a bit more firmly, a bit, uh, well, we can't say more clearly because he was clear as day in the first letter, but clearly again and with more firmness. But his main focus in this text is on how the Thessalonian church ought to regard those people and what they should do with them. They are to, in the first exhortation, separate from the wayward brother. He says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command, and it's a solemn command, that he gives in the name of Jesus Christ himself, that this is something that is um, consistent with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so it's not to be disregarded. Certainly we can say if the Apostle Paul, as an apostle, give, gave the churches a command, they should regard it seriously. But Paul adds the extra weight of saying that he's giving this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Command is for the church, I remind you. His command here at the, at the outset is not that they start working and remember what he said, but rather to those who are doing these things, keep away. You keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. They're to separate from the wayward brother. They're to avoid association with that individual. We might say, well, that seems a bit harsh, but... I think we'll see, as I suggested in the introduction, that this is both legitimate and reasonable as an act of love. Why is it legitimate and why is it reasonable? The first reason is that they're not following Paul's example. Paul left the Thessalonians a very clear example of how they ought to live. This was a main point in 1 Thessalonians, in his first letter, as he spoke about the example that he had left them when he was first with them. In fact, he spoke about how there in 1 Thessalonians, how he had worked night and day tirelessly, that he had treated them like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, and how he was ready to share the gospel of God with them and even to share his very own self. And then in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We see those words come back in this text. You remember our labor and toil. We worked night and day. We might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul had left them a very clear example and he reminds them again of that example here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For you yourselves, this is verse 7 now, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, those words again, we worked night and day. that We might not be a burden to any of you. So not only does he remind them of how he lived with them when he was with them, but he also reminds them of what he had written to them in the first letter, using that same language of toil and labor and not 
being a burden and working night and day, not eating their bread. And all of this was why? Why did he live this way? So that they might have an example where they could imitate Paul and Timothy and Silas who lived in this way before them. Paul had left them a clear example. Now it's important to recognize that Paul would have been absolutely within his rights to expect and to require that the Thessalonians provide for his needs while he was with them. He says as much in verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. You know, Paul will uh, teach uh, Timothy in his first letter to Timothy that it's right and it's good that someone who engages, that makes his work the study of God's word so that he might teach and proclaim God's word to God's people, that that person is worthy of, Paul says, double honor. And that language of double honor there in 1 Timothy speaks of being worthy of, of appropriate remuneration, being worthy of a, a appropriate um, a, a payment of wages for the work that he's laboring in. And he gives reasons, scriptural reasons, that go back to the Old Testament and to the words of Jesus. You shall not muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. And Paul makes the case that that's not because God cares so much about oxen, but it's, it's written for our sake. It's, it's a, it establishes a principle, being the idea that when someone works, you don't make it impossible for him to do his work by requiring him to also furnish his own food at another time. You don't make people work for free. So Paul lays down that principle there in 1 Timothy. And he also teaches Timothy in that letter that it's right for, um, for uh, the one who labors in that kind of work to be remunerated because Jesus himself said the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now we've seen where Jesus said that in Luke's gospel when he sent out the 72. And he told those 72 disciples that as they went out to spread the gospel that they weren't to go out as people who were trying to line their pockets, so to say, that they were traveling from house to house looking for the best demonstration of hospitality, looking for the best payment, that they were to be a people, rather, who simply accepted what others put before them. And the way that that, that worked was that they were to understand that they were servants of Jesus himself, that they weren't working for other people, they were working for the Lord, and the wages that they received would be whatever the Lord caused his people to put in front of them. That was the way that those servants, those disciples who were sent out were supposed to live because the labor is worthy of his wages. And so we see that there's biblical example, both from the Old Testament and from the teaching of Jesus himself that Paul would call to mind when he writes to Timothy, showing that one who labors in this kind of work does have a right because he really is working. He's working for his pay. He's doing the work that God has called him to do. But that's not what's going on in Thessalonica. The people who are living off the hospitality of others aren't people who are laboring to that end to expound the word and to teach people and to help them to understand what God would have them do. They they may be engaged in some sort of ministry. Maybe they are traveling evangelists, but we, we really don't know. Paul doesn't call out anything. But they're not engaged in that kind of work where Paul would say that person is worthy of support. Rather, they're just living off the good graces of those who are around them. And they have, they have rejected the example. They have refused to imitate the example that Paul has set for them. The example is clear. He's called attention to it. He, he made a, a demonstration of it, even foregoing his own rights. 
so that they might know what kind of life they were to live. So that he taught them not just with his words, but also with his actions. And they've taken that example. They've essentially said, we don't care. We're not going to imitate the good example of the Apostle Paul. The second thing is Paul has given the very clear command that we've seen, which makes it all the more shocking that these people would simply disregard the command that he's given, which he will reiterate in this text as well, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, now such person, persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he reiterates the command with an encouragement and he gives it in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just Paul giving his own opinion. This is Paul speaking as an apostle, a sent one, sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is speaking on God's behalf, telling his people, this is how you ought to live. They've disregarded that very clear word. They can't say we didn't understand it. They can't say uh, it, was, uh, it was extraordinary or too extreme or demanded too much of it. After all, Paul was just saying, do some work, get a job, support yourself. And they rejected that. In verse 11, we also see that their actions have a real and negative impact on the congregation. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Essentially, they're engaging in a form of theft. They are not busy at work, so they're not providing for themselves, and therefore they depend upon someone else to provide their bread, their food. But also, they are busy bodies. They're meddlers. They're gossipers. They're engaged in other people's affairs. They're going to be people that are, are sowing division and dissension within the church. They're having a real and negative impact on this congregation because they will not regard the word of God as the word of God, and so submit their lives to it. They're not demonstrating the fruit of repentance that shows true and real repentance that accords with uh, a follower of Christ. So Paul commands the Thessalonians, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Clear tradition had been handed down. Clear instructions had been given. Uh, clear example had been demonstrated they were disregarding it, and they were causing problems. So Paul gives them that command one more time with an encouragement. But he also tells the church in Thessalonica, stay away from that group of people. Second, Paul gives another exhortation to the church. And this is important for us to hear, and it's going to apply uh, when we think about uh, what happens when a church engages in church discipline. Paul says in verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. It's really easy when a person takes advantage of hospitality, takes advantage of the good graces of another, to become jaded, to say, you know what, I'm not going to be taken advantage of again. Uh, enough. I've, I, the, the, the hand's been bitten too many times. I'm, not, I'm just not going to open myself up to that. Or... We can see it put in the context of churches that have had division, that have, uh, that's come through someone acting in a way that's not proper to a follower of Christ and then causing uh, division within the church and then leading people to feel like, what's the point in, in joining with a bunch of Christians in a church? There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's just division. There's just uh, bitterness and anger. And I'm just weary of the whole thing. I'm jaded by the whole thing. 
I, I, I don't want to deal with that anymore. I don't need that in my life. That kind of attitude very often follows when these kinds of conflicts arise. And so Paul says, don't grow weary, brothers. Don't grow weary in doing good. Even though people have taken advantage of you in the Thessalonian course, uh, situation, keep being hospitable. Keep being gracious. Now, of course, he's going to say with regard to these individuals, you don't have to let them continue to bite the hand that feeds them, right? You don't have to let them continue to take advantage of you. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him. What's the purpose of that, again? Why is Paul saying, take note of that person? Don't have anything to do with him. That he may be ashamed. Now, if you were here this morning, you heard from Luke's gospel how Jesus put the ruler of a synagogue and, 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 and those whom he represented, he put them to shame there in Luke chapter 13. And they deserved to be put to shame because their self-righteous hypocrisy was absolutely sickening. And Jesus showed them that they cared more about their oxen and their donkeys than about a woman who had been suffering for 18 years with a disability. When he healed her, they called him to account because he did it on the Sabbath. And their priorities were all wrong. They were willing to do little things that, that they would regard at work as work in another situation to help an oxen get some water on the Sabbath morning. But they wouldn't be willing that the Lord who gave us the Sabbath should unbind a woman from her disability. That was when we saw it in that light, in that perspective, we saw that what looked like outward piety, a show of religious religiosity, when we saw that in a different perspective, we saw how ugly it really was. And we saw in Luke 13 then that they were ashamed. They were put to shame while everyone else gave glory to God and rejoiced at the glorious things that Jesus was doing. That was a good shame. It was a necessary shaming. It was for the good of that synagogue ruler if he would willingly humble himself and receive the lesson that he was learning. And it was for the good of the people whom he represented. And in the same way, this action that Paul commends to the Thessalonian church is for the good of those who are disregarding the words that he has given them. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. And then listen to this. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when I use that language and I address you as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a demonstration of affection because you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are my family. It's a display of love. It's the, the kind of way that, uh, that we ought to speak to one another. The same as when we hear the Apostle John in his letters calling uh, the early Christians' children and beloved. He loves them and he regards them as his family. Paul tells that the Thessalonian church is that these wayward brothers, they're to, that they're to stay away from those people. They're to carry out this act of church discipline, of separation. Why? Out of love for them. Because they are brothers. And sometimes in a family, a brother or a sister or a family member needs a little bit of tough love. That's simply a reality. We would do that in our own families. Sometimes we need a little tough love to straighten up, to get our act together, to learn the way that we ought to live. It's the same is true in, our ch in a church. Think of it this way. As we've gone through First and Second Thessalonians, we've seen that Paul speaks frequently about the coming of the Lord. And when you think about the way in which he described the coming of the Lord and the judgment that he will bring when he comes, all the way back in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, 
He spoke of the fact that when the Lord would co will come, in verse 9 there, they will suffer, those who have rejected him, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Earlier he described that group of people who will suffer that punishment as those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, they have demonstrated their unbelief by disregarding God's word. And what will happen to them on the day when Christ returns? They will be removed from the presence of the Lord. They will be removed from his face. They will be removed from his power and removed to eternal suffering. What is Paul telling this early church to do to these brothers who show themselves not to be acting like brothers by disregarding God's word? Remove them from your presence. And this is why it's such a loving act, such a gracious act that he is telling them to carry out. Because he's calling them to communicate a serious message through temporary separation from this family, this present manifestation of the family of God in the present, in the hope that eternal separation will not be the final result. In the hope that that temporary present separation will lead those people to repentance and in showing themselves to be repentant believers who finally say, I will receive the word of God. They will be restored to fellowship and not just here and now, but a fellowship with God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ that will be forever and ever. That's why it's a loving act that Paul is commending to the Thessalonian Christians. And we can see that love by the way he over and over again addresses these Thessalonians as brothers. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And again, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul regards these individuals as Christians, as brothers, but they need a little tough love. So he's commanding this early church to separate them from the congregation so that they might see the seriousness of what they're doing in disregarding the word of the Lord. It is a case study in church discipline. We ought to see it that way. Now let me stop and step back and reflect a little bit on what church discipline is and, and help to piece this picture together because 2 Thessalonians 3 doesn't give us the whole picture and so without that whole picture we still may struggle to understand what exactly um, what exactly is going on here and what exactly we should do as we seek to apply this kind of thing in our own congregation Matthew chapter 18 you can turn there or you can listen as I read Matthew chapter 18 what we find is a, one of um, five discourses in the gospel of Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, the narrative is framed around five discourses that Jesus delivers, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, ending with the Olivet Discourse concerning his return. This is the fourth of the five dis uh, uh, discourses. And it, it's a response to um, the, the wrangling of the disciples. They're arguing with one another over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in this context, Jesus gives a number of instructions about service and about humbling oneself and about, uh, on the one hand, accepting children in his name, uh, those the, the children being representative of those who are humble, and on the other hand, 
being uh, afraid and, 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 and being, being wary of leading a child astray. Again, leading any, we could apply it to any Christian. You don't want to lead a Christian astray. All of this kind of thing is in this particular text. There's a parable about the lost sheep and the restoration of a lost sheep and how important that one who's gone astray is to the shepherd. And so in that context then where the, a lot of the, the themes revolve around humility and restoration of one and, and not leading one astray, it's natural then that we come to the subject of how to deal with a brother or sister in Christ who sins against uh, another brother or sister in Christ. This is in Matthew 18, verse 15 then. Here, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, or, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, I think those last two verses, verse 19 and verse 20, are familiar to many of you. You may have them memorized. We often quote them when we speak about having a small gathering of Christians. And yet it's important to see that these are given in the context of church discipline. What Jesus is saying is that the, the, work that you, the thing that you do when you gather as a church to carry out church discipline, in the eyes of the world, it's going to seem like, a, like no big deal. Like, n you know, who cares? What are you doing at the end of the day? You're crossing a name off a list. You're hitting delete on a list. That's what the world would see church discipline as. A person probably doesn't want to be there anyway. Going to move on and find another place. That's sort of the way that our culture would look at it. Now, they might take a great offense, and they, they, they might uh, be very angry and feel like their name has been dragged through the dirt, and that kind of thing will happen in our context, too. But, um, but at the end of the day, from the world's perspective, it's got to be viewed as, so what? No big deal. You, you took them off a list. But those, those verses in verse 19 and 20, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, it may look like nothing to the world, but in heaven it's a big deal. In heaven it's a big deal. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree... On earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That though this judgment that is carried out looks like nothing in the eyes of the world, it's a great deal in the eyes of heaven. It is in the Lord's eyes because he is the one who stands behind it. He is the one who uh, finally will execute that judgment. But we don't do it because we want to be judgmental. We do it out of love to see that person restored. And here you see the process that unfolds in church discipline is that someone has offended another. Let's put it in the Thessalonian context. One brother is idle and taking advantage of another. So that what happens then? What do you do? Well, that brother who is offended goes to the one who is idle and says to him, brother, you're not working. You're not, putting, uh, you're, you're not providing for yourself, but you're able. You're a, you're a young man. You're able to provide for yourself. Get a job. Do some work. But stop taking advantage of my kindness and hospitality. It really is offensive to me. And it's, it's, it's wrong, and I, I, I don't have the means to do this. You see how that one might express that to that person. Maybe he repents and says, you know what? You're right. I remember what Paul wrote in that letter. Um, you know, I'm going to go and, and put in my job applications and find something and provide for myself. Right? Church discipline ends. Process ends. The brother's restored, and forgiveness must be granted. Forgiveness must be granted. 
Not if he, if he does it seven times, keep granting it. Seventy times seven, keep granting it. Because we've been forgiven much. But suppose that brother says, no, who, you know, who's Paul? Who cares? I'm going to do what I want to do. What do you do? You take two or three others. Why? So that the charge is not established on the basis of hearsay. It's a biblical principle that charges in the, cor- in, a, in the course of justice need to be established on the basis of multiple trustworthy eyewitnesses. That's why it's so important in the Ten Commandments that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They wanted to create a situation, an environment where you had uh, trustworthy witnesses, and the church ought to be no different. That charges must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. So this doesn't mean that someone goes to his friend and says, hey, this guy's offended me in this way. Will you come and be the second witness? No, it's someone who can independently testify, someone who can independently corroborate the charge. If there's no other person that can independently corroborate the charge, church discipline can't proceed. Of course, we can all think of ways that we can uh, establish that charge. We can work down that path if it, it becomes necessary. But on the basis then of two or three witnesses, they go and they don't take it to the church right away, but they go to the person, the offending party. They say, brother, you're not working and you're able to work. Get a job. You're relying on the good graces of somebody else when you ought to be providing for yourself. We'll help you get a job. We'll help you fill out the job applications. We'll help you get some training. Whatever we need to do. But right now you're not doing what we're taught in the word of God. And now you imagine that brother says, "Ah, I just... Yeah, it, it, my situation's just different. I'm not, you, you, don't, you just don't understand. I'm not going to get on the, I, I don't, I'm not going to get a job. You guys ought to support me. Well, what do you do then? Then you take it before the congregation. And this is the key here. No pastor, I do not have the authority. I do not have the authority to discipline a member out of the church. No pastor, no group of elders can do this. Jesus says, you take it before the church. It is the congregation of the church who has the, authority then when they're gathered to finally put this into practice. And that's a great guard against the abuse of power by elders and pastors. I think it's important for us to see that. Not every denomination works that way. And I think it's a mistake. I think that's an example where we need to have a congregational polity in the church. That's what Paul's calling upon the Thessalonians to do. As a congregation, they must corporately make a decision to stay away from, to have nothing to do with the brothers who are living in idleness and meddling in the, fa- the affairs of others. They've disregarded the clear instruction of the apostle, the clear instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've disregarded it all. And they need to be disciplined in this loving way so that they might see their error and repent and be restored to fellowship in the present and forever. It's an important case study then as we see and it is a loving thing. My children have been listening to the Chronicles of Narnia and um, sometimes I am in the car with them and I hear bits and pieces out of the later books of uh, the, the, the uh, plots. I've forgotten all of those except the first novel but I hear bits and pieces and one, sometime or other one of the children in the book will encounter a situation where he or she is tempted by some sin. Tempted by some sin or maybe perusing some sort of book and, and finding uh, spells that that, kid, that ch- child might, um, might use to make themselves beautiful or rich or something like that. And then suddenly the, the main character, Aslan, you see his, the, the lion, you see his face and he, he snarls at the kid. He, he, he growls at the kid. And it's a stern kind of uh, you know, forceful thing that, that scares them and then they forget what they were, what was so interesting to them, what was so tempting. And they, 
they, they move on. And uh, it's, that, it's, it's this loving firmness. They fear that lion. And what, you can know what C.S. Lewis was trying to do was to create in the children's novel a picture of what God does for us. When, when a picture of what the fear of the Lord looks like. It's a loving thing that is done to warn those children away from a greater danger. And it's a loving thing that God does for us in calling us together in this kind of relationship with one another to warn us away from the greater danger because he loves us. And he calls us into his presence both now and in eternity. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing that he's promised. But we must regard his word as his word. And if he is Lord, we are called to submit to his word. Saying that Jesus Christ is Lord is not just some empty phrase that we use. If he is Lord, then he is our Lord. And we must obey his word. Nevertheless, in all of it, brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul said, as we've seen, don't grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Now, in the, the few minutes that we have left, I want to reflect on another thing before we close. I want to reflect upon the damage that can be done by the combination of doctrinal error combined with cultural confusion. The, do, the combination of doctrinal error combined with cultural confusion. That's what we see in Thessalonica. We don't know, again, exact, exactly what led to the problem of idleness, but we can we can presume that it had something to do with the culture in Thessalonica, that system of patronage, the hospitality that arose, some good elements, some bad elements of the culture. And that combined with the doctrinal errors we've seen concerning eschatology, concerning the coming of Christ and what to expect as we look forward to the end. We ought to also reflect on how this might uh, appear in our own modern context. I'm going to give you two examples that one might hit rather close to home and then one Maybe unfamiliar to some of you, but others you might say, oh, I've heard of this kind of thing. The first is uh, I, sometimes I go on the Internet and I see advertisements. And um, I saw one uh, recently that was advertising that we could, I could invest in oil drilling in Israel so that I could be a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. Wow, isn't that a, what, what prophecy are they talking about? I have no idea. But... Um, you know, they were advertising this, and maybe I could throw away my money at that. But that kind of thing appeals to a lot of people. It appeals to a lot of people. Well, wouldn't it be great to be a participant in the fulfillment of prophecy? The desire for wealth, which is part of our culture, combines with an eschatological fervor, a desire to see the fulfillment of God's saving purposes for his people. And then suddenly we're putting our wealth to work in a way that we're not called to put our wealth to work for the kingdom. We think we're doing it for the kingdom, but we're not really doing it for the kingdom. God doesn't call us to put our wealth to work for the kingdom by investing in some oil rig in Israel. He calls us to put our wealth for the kingdom by using it to love others. That's what the very clear instruction we've seen in the Gospel of Luke just last week. The second example I want to put before you is, is one, a, a report I read actually from the, the man himself, a pastor, young man in his 20s who's planted a church with others in, uh, in a, very, a very liberal state. And then as he was working through um, the book of Daniel, he changed his mind about his eschatological convictions. He came to believe that um, what's going to unfold is uh, uh, a progressive expansion of the uh, progressive um, going forth of the gospel so that basically the whole world will be come under the influence of the gospel, and, and you, every country in the world would basically be a bunch of Christians. That's, that's one view that some people have. 
And so he was laboring in a place where there was a lot of opposition, and they weren't seeing much fruit, and he decided to close down that church, to move to greener pastures. And um, he touted this as though he was being faithful because he discovered a truer eschatology. And I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty details of that eschatological view. It's actually, it can be quite complex, and there are many actually very faithful Christians who have held to that same view. But I don't think this was faithful, because what it wasn't was the patient perseverance we're called to show. Think about the Thessalonian context. They faced opposition, and they persevered faithfully through that. What if one of them were to say, you know, the gospel is supposed to go forth, and people are supposed to repent and believe, and so it should be all good, so I'm going to leave Thessalonica, and I'm going to go to greener pastures. Instead of staying in the place where I was called to minister and to promote the gospel and to you see that that was not what Paul would have him do. He wanted them to stay there and to hold fast and to share the gospel faithfully and to endure faithfully in all of their difficulties. And in both of these examples, the situation, the picture I'm painting is that the doctrinal issues underlying it can be quite complex, but you don't need to untangle all of those to understand what to do because the instructions that we have are really, really clear. The things that undergirded the problem of idleness in Thessalonica could be really complex and commentators aren't even fully agreed on what, what uh, led to those. But Paul's instruction were clear, were clear as day. When we think about what we're to do as Christians, living, uh, anticipating the coming of our Lord, we're to live like we live now. Living faithfully by loving one another, by holding fast our hope, by enduring with steadfastness in the face of opposition, whatever it is that we face, by seeking to make disciples of others as we share the gospel and seek to teach them all that our Lord has taught us. It sounds great as the, the, with the inflection I use, but it's a rather ordinary life, a quiet life. And then we go to our work and we go to our job on Monday. That could be in the home or you could be uh, spending time volunteering or whatever it is that you're doing based on your situation and stage in life, or you could be going to uh, a job as an engineer or a computer scientist or at the railroad or whatever, and you're doing that work that God has called you to do faithfully as an example to others so that people will see your, your testimony in the work you do and in the words that you have. It's a rather ordinary, simple life. You were called to do that, and however near Christ's coming is, it doesn't change that. We're not called to go and, and invest in frivolous things, and we're not called to be constantly moving around and seeking the greener pastures and all of that kind of thing. We're just to live faithfully where we're called, as I've put in the title of this text, to be busy while we wait. While we wait for our Lord to come, we stay busy in the things that he's called us, the ordinary things he's called us. And this is taught to us in Scripture. It's taught to us in tradi the tradition that's handed down through Scripture. It's taught to us by the example of the apostles and our Lord. It's taught to us in the commands that they've given us. It's taught to us in the encouragement that we've received. It's very clear teaching, just as the teaching that Paul had given the Thessalonians concerning their own work ethic was very clear. We don't need to sort out the complexities of the doctrines to know what we ought to do, how we can live faithfully as we wait for Christ to come. Eschatology may be the most confusing subject for all Christians, particularly because we await the fulfillment. We don't yet see what will happen that will fulfill all of the things that have been promised. We don't need to have all those details or the benefit of the hindsight of hindsight in order to live faithfully. The main contours of 
Christian eschatology are clear, and they give us clear clarity of how we are to live faithfully while we wait. So we get busy waiting and remain busy while we wait. We work faithfully, we love others, we do good with joy and patience, not growing weary in well-doing, but holding fast to our faith so that we are found doing what our Lord would have us be doing when he comes. That's how we live faithfully as Christians. And here we are reminded with these benedictions that Paul leaves us with. As we think about those things and as we seek to live faithfully, we're reminded that the Lord is with us and through him we have peace with God. So all these other difficulties, though they may be difficult, this is what really matters. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He is indeed with us as he's promised. And he will give us peace as he's promised. We can be assured of his word to us through the apostle as he assured the Thessalonians that it really was him writing. We can be assured of the grace of our Lord. that His grace is with us as well. And so because of that, because of his presence, because of the peace that we have through him, because of the grace of our Lord, though the situations that, are, that face us may be difficult, we know that we have what we need in order to live faithfully as we wait for our Lord to come. So let's get busy while we wait. Be busy waiting. And as we do that, we live together. Let's, do, uh, let, let's live together faithfully as a church, willing to do these hard things if we're called to do that, but doing it with love and letting it be part of our busyness while we wait. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a difficult subject to take up and to consider, but it is certainly easier when there's no situation in front of us where we need to put it into practice. Lord, we pray that if that time should come, we pray that it won't come, but if it should come, that we would be faithful even in this. But now, Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful in those small things or the seemingly small things that are yet very clear things, clear instructions that you have given us those main things which are so plain to us. May we be faithful in those things as obedient servants, Lord. We even know and we recognize that our obedience does not flow from um, our own discipline and our own um, strength and our own will, but rather that too is a grace that you grant to us. So you pr we pray, Lord, that you would grant us this grace so that we might grow in Christ-likeness and that we might follow uh, your word in every way in which you call us. We pray, Lord, that as you sanctify us uh, by degrees, as you've promised us in view of the day when you will fully transform us, we pray that you would um, help us to persevere in this growth through repentance, through that turning, as we recognize the sin in our lives, that we might be people who have a sensitive uh, conscience to your word, so that when we are challenged or confronted by your word, we are ready to turn that we don't need two or three to come and confront us and certainly don't need to stand before a congregation to be uh, challenged to repent, but that we are ready when simply confronted by your word to repent of our sin and to turn again and renew again our resolve to live faithfully. Again, this is a grace, Lord, and so we pray for it and ask that you would work in this way in our life, in our lives together. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.